I'm Dr. Regina Kep. I'm a board-certified clinical psychologist, and I specialize with older adults and families. I created the Psychology of Aging podcast to dispel myths about aging, destigmatize mental health for older adults, and improve access to mental health care. Whether you're an older adult, a family member caring for an older adult, or a professional working with older adults, you're in the right place. And one more thing. If you're a licensed mental health provider like a social worker, psychologist, counselor, therapist, or an aging life care expert or certified care manager looking for continuing education focused on mental health and aging, simply go to mentalhealthandaging.com to learn more about how to earn your CEUs. All right, let's jump into today's episode. Larie Cook-Daniels has been working on both LGBT and aging issues since 1974. In the 90s, she was a primary staff person for the National Center on Elder Abuse. She founded the Transgender Aging Network in 1998 and in 2000 became the policy and program director for FORGE, a 26-year-old national transgender and SAFA, that stands for Significant Others, Friends, Family, and Allies, organization that specializes in transgender aging and victims of violence. Lurie is a pioneer in transgender aging and has recently or was recently invited to to a White House listening session on senior supports and elder care for transgender individuals in September 2021. And today, Lurie is on the podcast talking with us about how to be an ally to transgender older adults. So Lurie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Will you share a little bit about your background outside of your bio, your background in um, transgender aging and why this topic is so important to you? Yes, I, um, it's been personal. Um, my work with LGBT issues has been personal from the beginning. I came out as a lesbian um, back in 1974. Uh, and in the early 80s, I um, partnered with a person who fairly quickly told me that they felt they were male, even though um, I perceived them as female. And I was, um, I was a lesbian activist. So um, I actually blocked him from transitioning for nine years, because it would change my identity, and I wasn't willing to go there. And when I finally saw the light Um, part of our negotiation during his transition was that I would continue to be an activist. So that moved me into the trans community instead of the lesbian community, um, where I found lots to work on. Um, But since I had been doing LGBT aging issues for uh, a long time, people started asking me about trans aging. And so at that point, I founded the Transgender Aging Network, which was simply to try and gather together and create a communications channel between anyone I could find that was interested in trans aging. Because there's, you know, there's still, even 20 some odd years later, there's still no really organized place for discussions about trans aging to take place. Yeah. And how often are those conversations taking place now with the Transgender Aging Network? Well, um, the Transgender Aging Network has had almost no funding uh, for its history. So it's been pro bono whenever I could make something happen. So what has been really active is we have a peer support listserv that's been going for um, 24 years now. And that, that at times... There, there are times when we have dozens of posts a day, and then there are times when nobody has anything to say. Um, but that has regularly had about 100 and some odd people on it. The other thing that we have is a listserv for the Transgender Aging Network, which is for anyone. Um, Elder TG is just for trans elders, and they're close partners. Um and so that listserv, that listserv is slow. It's a couple of a couple of posts a month, and we opened a Facebook page as well as people started shifting their how they were communicating. 
I'm looking for funding now to try and uh, ramp up the trans aging network because I am getting I'm getting more and more requests. Um, people are are interested. Wonderful. What do you suppose is inspiring the interest now? Well, we're all aging. <laughs> And I think you and I, before you, uh, before we started this tape, we're talking about cultural competency and how people are getting that they need to be culturally competent. And I think that's happened. That's also happening in the trans field as people are realizing, oh, there are these people out out here, and we probably ought to know something. Um, so there's more interest right now. Yeah. Um, part of what I've been noticing, I do a lot of multicultural education and multicultural humility education in senior care communities as well and senior uh, community recreational centers with their staff and mental health clinics. One of the areas of the most educational need is in transgender health and mental health and wellness and inclusion and equity in resources and in treatment and in you know, just the basic humanity um, mm-hmm. in terms of inclusion. And so those uh, transgender health and mental health and, and gender nonconforming and gender non-binary health and mental health um, often stand out as an area uh, that needs to be bolstered when we're doing multicultural work. Yeah. Yeah. And say a little bit, I'm so curious to learn about this White House listening session on senior supports and elder care for transgender individuals. What was that? Well, you know, I'm not entirely certain I know the framework of it. I got an email asking me to participate um, in this trans elder roundtable, but it didn't tell me the context in which it was being done. I suspect it may have been an outgrowth of President Biden's gender work. I'm not entirely sure. (laughs) But what they did was um, there were between 20 and 30 of us on on a Zoom call, and we each had three minutes to talk about what we felt the key trans elder issues were. Um, And then we were asked to do recommendations on what the federal government could do. Um, so I, it was interesting. It was a really varied, there were really varied responses. Um, there were those of us that are used to doing organizing and, um, kind of talked in terms of the trans elder community. And then there were people that wanted to talk about their particular story. So it was, there were, it was an interesting mix of what was talked about. They did have a lot of personnel from various agencies. And that was kind of exciting um, because it wasn't, it wasn't all, uh, it wasn't the usual suspects. It wasn't just the people that, that advocates have talked to before. Um, and it was kind of um, interesting to see it to, or to imagine it getting um, kind of seated in, in various agencies. So I've not yet seen anything coming out of it, um, but I'm, I'm hopeful. <laughs> Are you able to talk about your three issues and recommendations? Calling all mental health providers. Have you been feeling ineffective, stuck, or unsure of how to best help your client with memory loss? Well, it's not your fault. Most therapists haven't had any training in addressing memory loss or cognitive changes in therapy. But I got something for you. In my free 10-minute video where I walk you through five steps for helping your clients presenting with memory loss, you'll learn the difference between memory loss and mental health concerns for older adults and how to help. Get this free training and a bonus workbook that you can start using in your clinic today. Simply go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity to learn more. 
That's www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y. No, because I have COVID brain and I don't need <laughs> And I'm I'm just like th- throwing you a curveball. <laughs> I could look it up. Oh, that's I fine. Everything in writing because, yeah. because COVID brain is really not helping. <laughs> well, and speaking of writing, you do you have done and continue to do a lot of writing. So you have written book chapters on transgender aging, you've written um fact sheets and guides for senior care communities, or even health aides working with transgender older adults, how to provide affirming uh, assistance in terms of health aid assistance to older adults or transgender older adults. And then most recently you um, authored a guide on how to be an ally to transgender yes. older adults. And that's, yes. that's sort of the purpose of our, our meeting today. So I'm, I'm, this is an issue and I don't want to actually say issue. So I'm trying to get a move away from the term issue. This is a topic that I think is incredibly important for so many of us who um, strive to be allies with uh, multiple groups of people with histories of marginalization and harm and trauma, and um, who have been left out systemically of, you know, mental health care, health care, education, sports, and so on, life right? Just living spaces. And so we're all, I know so many like myself are yearning for more education about how to be, um, I think even more than an ally, a co-conspirator, but for this Mm -hmm. purpose, we'll talk about allyship, but just how to be an effective ally in a way that's affirming and not, um, pejorative or, um, reinforcing any, any of the, the experiences that um, transgender people have had. And so um, I know so many people will be eager to learn about how to be an effective ally and a helpful ally. So thank you for being here. So what does it mean to be an ally? Well, it's, I want to start with saying that actually for the the, uh, transgender agency I, I work for, we tend to not use the word ally because we want people to um, own the kind of world we all want to live in. And that's not an ally. That's a person help, you know, helping the collective, uh, you know, I, I tend to think like with, with the police shootings, it's like, I don't want the police to stop shooting black men. I want them to stop shooting people. <laughs> it's not, yes, they're mainly killing black men, but but that's not the world I want is where people get shot by police. So we actually don't use ally very often. However, um, we had an experience a few years ago where we were doing um, a series of trainings with a group that, um, a, a government-based group that offered substance use, um, housing, mental health care, a lot of lot of those sorts of things, and we were we were doing a six a six part uh, training and doing focus groups, and uh, particularly in the focus groups, some people were talking about helping their clients with transition issues. Transition meaning moving from one gender to another, and I was really confused because they were substance use agencies. They were they were mental health agencies. They were not, you know, they that wasn't their job. And I realized in talking to them and working with them that they knew it wasn't their job, but they really wanted to be helpful. It was important to them as service providers as well as what may be called an ally, to be helpful to these people. And I also realized that um, trans people in general have had such bad experiences with service providers that um, we have a lot of reluctance to to go to another service provider because what if they're, they're 
discriminatory or what if they're disrespectful? And so I realized that these the clients these people were working with had established trust in them. And therefore, they were turning to them for a range of things because here was one of the few trusted um, service providers they knew. So when um, Cheryl Wayland, who is part of SAGE, came to me and said, I want, I want a guide for allies because people are asking me, how do I help? That was the framework I had of someone that is probably providing professional services of some sort, but not necessarily tra transgender related and wanted to be helpful. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the ally that, that I have in mind. Um, and I think an ally, I would contrast an ally with two other um, concepts. One is, is a friend. A friend is a relationship of reciprocity. Um, you're helping each other. You're, it's, it's an equality relationship. And then there's a service provider that's usually providing particular services. It's not a two-way relationship for the most part. Um, and the service provider is supposed to do something, <laughs> you know, generally provide some kind of service. That's why they're called service providers. An ally is kind of a hybrid. Um, the main goal of the ally is to support, to help the other person navigate um, life and emotions. We all need that. <laughs> they don't tell a person what to do, but the person may ask them to do things like running errands or something like that, but they're not there to be advisors. Um, the ally's goal is to make the person's life easier and more pleasurable. And they may become friends. <laughs> and I, I will, it was important for me to put that in early on because um, I don't, I, I didn't want to promote the idea that there can be a sense with an ally there's a, that one is up and one is down. And that doesn't necessarily, that is not necessarily the case. There's room to develop honest relationships, honest friendships. I'm curious for, for therapists or people who are in this um, role where there are inequities in the relationship right. based on the roles, a client with a therapist, how do you how would you encourage us to look at allyship or co-conspiratorship or that um, equitable relationship in the context of a relationship that is inherently at the beginning and throughout um, has a power differential client and psychologist, client and therapist? Right. I, um, I think I wouldn't go that far. I think I wouldn't call them an ally. I think I would keep them in their role, in their defined role, in the, in the role that they have negotiated with their client, more so than as an ally. I'm, I'm amazed, I think I'm mainly talking about people that don't have a formal role with their client. But now that is that is looking at ally as as primarily um, ally to an individual. If we talk about ally to a community, that's really different. And in that case, we're we're talking about how do I change the world um, in in a way that makes it easier. And that may be the way that you're primarily thinking about ally is looking looking at that world piece and mine mine ally here was looking at individual support mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. yeah and i'm thinking about ways for uh professionals in this space you know are your systems affirming and i know that um for, uh, is it sage and the national lgtb aging resource center has a great guide for creating affirming 
communities. Yes. So like for hospital systems and long-term care communities, creating affirming spaces. And so would that be one way for professionals to be an ally to the transgender community by incorporating some of those guidelines from those resources into their systems? Absolutely. Absolutely. You can be an advocate within your own system. And in fact, I would argue if you're not advocating within your own system and your system is not behaving well, don't call yourself an ally (laughs) because your system is doing harm. Uh, You really do need to work on your own system. But some of the other other suggestions we had for um, for working out in the world on trans issues is bring up trans people in topics. I mean, it's really simple. It's it's what anybody can do. And it just helps break the um, decades long silence we've had. And it helps norm. trans people and just just bringing up the subject can be really helpful. Um, We have watch for and use opportunities to advocate. So that's when uh, someone is um, saying something that is incorrect or offensive and just trying to correct those those things when you when you can. We have help service providers learn more because the service providers need a lot more training. And we're, you know, we we think, well, that's somebody's role is to get that training. Well, yes, and people on the outside just talking to a service provider can go, you know, you really ought to have some training <laughs> on this. So there's there's simple, simple things we can do. Um, and then the last one was advocate for public policy changes. I mean, um, as I said, like even something that seems so narrow and will actually, actually truly affect like a handful of school children nationwide. We just don't have tons of trans kids trying to get on teams. Um, and yet, as I said, that that creates an environment that affects all trans people. And in fact, affects um, it affects parents and community members. I mean, I, I worry about what's gonna happen <laughs> if the child of some of these people ends up coming out. Or will the child not say to their parent that they're identifying as trans or non-binary because mom has already said she doesn't like us. Of course. You know, doesn't think I should be on the team. You know, I, I think that people forget sometimes that what they say gets heard by other people and may have an impact they had no idea about. Or, and I think the impact is severe in those cases. I think also the impact on um, people and children who are um, uh, cisgender is harmful. You know, if we see people in our communities being alienated and traumatized, and rejected on a systemic and public level that gets internalized in cisgender people too. And it, and it's like a um, rot. (laughs) I just think it's like mold inside of us that we have to then spend a lifetime cleaning up, I think. And, and it's just perpetuates harm in societies. And it's so, I, I think it's harmful across the, it's, particularly harmful to LGBTQ folks and trans identified folks. It's also harmful to cisgender people. Yeah. And if I, um, if I'm in a situation where I'm seeing somebody being bullied, what does that do to me? Is it tells me, keep yourself in line, you know, do whatever you have to do to not be bullied. It frightens all of us. It makes us 
conform, whether conformity is good for us or not. Um, it makes us walk around in fear. You know, I've done some um, uh, trainings and pu publications for support groups. And I keep emphasizing, if you don't confront, it, it, not necessarily confront, but if you don't respond to a bias statement, it's not just affecting the target that we, we call a target. It's affecting everybody in that room that's thinking, I wonder what I might say that might get attacked. Um, it's really squelching. It's very squelching. Can you share a bit about the terms? So what the difference is between transgender, gender non-conforming, non-binary? There's a lot of curiosity about what do the terms actually mean? And when can I use them? What can I say? Uh, we should have just titled this complicating everything. <laughs> because my answer to that is going to be a little different than you expect. Okay. There was a time uh, many, many years ago where Forge did a training for sexual assault um, professionals. And we, we did the definitions. And then the training broke up and we were we were watching. Um, but we were just hanging out, you know, the way you do. And we watched one of the service providers go over to a trans person and say, you know that term you use for yourself? It's not right. <laughs> and as a trainer, you just want to melt through the floor. It's like, oh, that is so not right. So now we teach about the terms paradox, which is it's really important to know um, what term your client uses because that's their identity. And when you reflect that word, you say, I see you and I respect you and you have a right to be who you are. It's very important, particularly for mental health professionals. Um, and at the same time, that term is gonna tell you squat because um, the terms change rapidly. Um, the terms are different based on generation, um, and they're just they're just evolving. We actually have um, Forge has publications that are still on the website that use transgendered. That was that was perfectly acceptable language twenty years ago, fifteen years ago. It's not anymore, and we have to figure out. Okay, are we going to go back and edit all those documents or not. Um, but there are still people out there that call themselves transgendered. Another area that we've, um, where we've got a, a very strong divide is that uh, younger trans people view, tend to view the word transsexual as offensive. Well, I work with trans older adults and that and transsexual was the word that they found for themselves 40 years ago. And what does it say to them when you say that word's offensive? Are you calling them offensive? Are you disrespecting them? Are you um, saying all the, all the people that came before me are irrelevant because they didn't have the right language? I mean, you know, there's, there's all of these things there. So, um, I mean, we can, we, can we can describe what transgender means. Generally, it's, um, it's an umbrella term that means uh, someone was assigned at birth as either male or female and now have a gender identity different from what they were assigned. So it might have been going from one gender to another. It might have been going to non-binary, which is not fitting into male or female. It might be going into, there are dozens of words people have made up for how um, how to describe themselves. And interestingly, I read a, a psychiatrist psychology paper 
that said that that making up of terms was actually um, mentally very helpful. That 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 the process of self-defining, even if it goes to making up a name that has not existed before, was good for the mental health. I can see that there's a claiming of your identity. Like I am, I am worth who I am. I'm, I'm worthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it makes it hard for the rest of us, but you know, we already know life is not easy. (laughs) And back to the nuances. Really the terms paradox is, is, I think is really helpful. You need to know the person's term, but don't pretend it tells you anything. Transsexual for a while meant you went through surgery or that you wanted surgery. It doesn't mean that anymore. Um, You know, so if you think, well, that means they've had surgery, you would possibly be wrong. So just try not to go there. (laughs) And speaking of terms outside of the terms paradox, there are terms that are more or less affirming when we talk about hormone affirming treatments or what terms are um, the most affirming terms to use when we talk in in medicine or in medical care? Um, Right now it is gender affirming. Um, I can tell you don't use sex change, Um, but what gender affirming suggests, I mean, with words, we're talking nuances. What Gender affirming suggests is that your gender was always what it is. And by affirming it, we're just adjusting society around it. And so that's why it's an affirming term. Okay. So it's gender affirming Mm -hmm. uh, treatments. Mm -hmm. And that'll be different next week. I'm only I'm only half joking. We try very hard to keep up with the language changes because you know we work this this 24 seven, um, and it is still you know we nobody sends out the memo that says this is now you know X is now Y. We just all of a sudden you realize oh people are using Y. <laughs> And so what would you say then to um, people who don't live this 24 seven? Well, let me, let me divide that into two. If you're working with an individual, the only thing that really matters is what the individual uses. I mean, uh, you could say, what, what are you calling the surgery you just scheduled? Um, Yeah. You know, so one-on-one you can ask. I mean, the truth is that people are using both terms. We know some terms we've definitely outgrown, but there are other terms that it's like, well, I've actually heard a person call themselves that, you know? I mean, we need to have some humility. The society is changing around us. Um, and yeah, if you were trying to figure out what language you wanted to use, I would I would probably go to some of the trans websites and see what what's getting used currently. Um, and and just know that just be prepared to possibly be challenged and say, I didn't know that had changed. <laughs> You know, don't try not to think you can be perfect on this because it is so um, this is this is an ocean and the waves keep coming. This is one of the major reasons there is bias against transgender people is because we mess up the name, the, the terms people have and the way that they think about it. And um, we just, we are so challenging to boxes, including words. So this is an inherent characteristic of this population is we mess with the boxes. <laughs> yeah. 
in your guide, the, uh, how to be an ally to transgender older adults, you talked about some of the common issues that transgender older adults might be experiencing, like, um, medical mental health discrimination and violence, long-term care, dementia. Can we talk about some of those common issues for, uh, transgender older adults Mm -hmm. and what, um, people working with old transgender, older adults might need to be thoughtful of, or keep in mind, what are some of the medical issues that transgender older adults face? Okay. I'm going to back us up on this. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Because when we're, when we're talking about, um, when we're talking about the whole ball of wax, uh, some of the issues are the same thing that all of us are dealing with. Um, increasing health issues, end-of-life questions, finding and funding long-term care, dementia, et cetera. These are all things that trans elders might be dealing with. Another set of issues are more trans-specific. So that would be the anti-trans discrimination, um, including refusal to admit a trans elder to a nursing home. We have a case of that recently. Anti-trans violence, healthcare related to Um, body parts that are considered incongruent. So a trans woman with a prostate gland that needs checking, even though there aren't boxes that on the forms, Um, having to come out to help and long-term care providers, minority stress. So those things that are fairly trans-specific. So those are two. And then the third are issues related to transition, moving from one gender to another. And this is what people tend to think of when they think of transgender people, is they think of that time when you're making the change. Well, in reality, trans elders could have made this transition back when they were in their teens. (laughs) They could have made it midlife, in which case, you know, they've got, they've lived in, in probably two genders. Um, or they could be transitioning in later life. So the um, so the guide is divided up a little bit to separate out the transition issues because so many trans people are like, been there, done that, I'm gone, you know, <laughs> we don't need to talk about that. Uh, and to talk about some of the other issues that are uh, more specific to being trans. So the first was just general issues related to aging that are common among all older adults, like vulnerability to illness, end of life concerns. Uh, Then there, the second is the history of violence and discrimination toward transgender elders and older adults. Mm-hmm. transgender people in general mm-hmm. across the lifespan experience. We're seeing this with children being right. alienated from sports and then, um, and then issues related to the transition itself. And yeah. for some older adults, uh, this may no longer be a topic that they need to, to work through or on, or that that's relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and for others, it may be, mm-hmm. if we were to, uh, talk about um, the history of violence and discrimination specific to transgender older adults, what are some important themes that service providers or mental health providers need to be mindful of? Um, there's a couple of things that are really critical. One is polyvictimization. When we look at trans adults, let alone trans older adults, what we are typically looking at is people who have had multiple experiences of violence of different types. And um, we've ever even been known to say to people, you, <laughs> you, you won't get a trans person that hasn't experienced violence. That's not really true, but, but we typically have high rates of, of trauma. And in fact, so we have some research that shows it starts in childhood, even before the kid comes out as trans. Um, we don't quite know how that's, you know, the mechanisms there. Um, so we're we're talking a lot. Uh, we're talking a lot of history. Um, some of that violence, or at least major discriminate, 
discrimination experiences have come from healthcare providers and mental health providers. So you not only have a general non-trusting because you know darn well the world is not pro-trans, but you have you may have I get uh, I have a panic attack when I walk into a doctor's office. Um, so that you know that that history of victimization uh, can be a real problem. Um, what is interesting, this makes me think of a study that we did uh, over a decade ago. We were trying to ask people about elder abuse experiences, and we gave them the definition of the various types of elder abuse. Um, but that they did not use those definitions. They used like abandonment was losing their family. Um, Abuse was being kept out of a public restroom. Um, so I, I think we're also looking at, we need to be open to um, what the elder uh, is seeing as their experiences and not get stuck in, well, that's not elder abuse. <laughs> Yeah. It's another one of the terms things. <laughs> yes, the uh yes. But I can see that abandonment and being excluded from a public restroom is a, emotional abuse as um neglect. Yeah. And yeah. those are it doesn't it doesn't take long to search for where the <laughs> to identify right. where the abuse is in that. Right. And it was interesting because we did self self um self-neglect and nearly everybody that we talked to, it was a small study, but nearly everyone said that they had self-neglected. Well, that's, that has a particular definition in elder abuse, but it did. So it did make me think what, what, if we talk to people of various ages about self-neglect, what, what would come up? What would we be, what would we learn from that? We'll say more about that. What are give me an example? I think it's P. I think it was probably people who um, who just got so depressed or had so many issues that they couldn't keep their own self together, and they were calling that self neglect mm -hmm. mm -hmm. when it was rooted in. Um... I don't know what we call it. Mm -hmm. What is the term we would use for? It, when it's an elder who's not taking care of herself, not feeding herself, not bathing herself, whatever, we call it self-neglect. What do we call it when it's a 40-year-old? Yeah, I, I don't a good know. Question. It might be self-neglect as a result of depression or trauma yeah. or rejection or alienation. It's just an area, it, it was just an area that was really interesting because everybody was saying, oh yeah, I've had that. <laughs> well, and that is one of the symptoms, right, of a depressive disorder. Yes. You know, withdrawal from others. And then also when we do our, um, for clinicians who are listening, our mental status exam, you look at grooming, like is the person taking care of themselves and have they, a lot of the older adults who I'm worried about, who worried for self-neglect all ask them what they're eating and yeah. uh, how often they're bathing. And, you know, and I, and I think that could be related to all sorts of conditions. Right. And that actually um, brings up a topic that I have been concerned about for some time, because I did, I did do elder abuse work for quite a while. Um, one of the things we see with self-neglectors is a lot of times is um, I'm independent and I'm not going to become dependent. Well, I think that's probably even stronger among trans elders. And I know I have heard trans elders say, I would rather die than go into a nursing home. So um, that issue of, do we have more trans elders self-neglecting than you know, population would say? I think the answer is probably yes. Your experience, your anecdotal experience, yeah. Yeah, because people do not want to do nursing homes. 
and they do not want to chance um, a service provider interactions. And I think the risk for that is higher given statistics on um, family supports for caregiving yeah. and who's there to check in and make sure that um, the trans elder is doing okay, their right. community supports. Right. And that, that does, that does, this one's, this one's one of my soapboxes. <laughs> so I'm pulling out the soapbox. Part of the reason that we have so much isolation among trans elders is no one is supporting their spouses and adult children. There is no one saying to those 35 year wives, actually, there are women who stay. Let me tell you how they're doing it. Um, there's no one for the adults to go to, the, the adult children, for us to say, actually, your four-year-old is not going to be confused. Your four-year-old is just going to go, grandma used to be grandpa? Okay. <laughs> and then they're going to run off. You know, there's, there's, no, um, there's no support for these family members. And so I feel like society has created some of the isolation that we're now dealing with. Yeah. It's our fault. And that's why we're talking today because we need to shift it. <laughs> we need to change that. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Now, now we talked about polyvictimization and that the risk for that is is high in transgender elders and across the lifespan. You're saying that that might even show up early in childhood, um, before the person has come out or um, revealed their identity. Can I say it like that, Laurie? Yeah, and. Um, and in terms of issues related to the transition, then, it, well, well, let me back up because then you mentioned, I'd rather die than move into a nursing home and long-term care is a huge, we, you mentioned it a couple of times is a huge issue for transgender older adults. Can you talk a little bit about the issues in long-term care for transgender older adults? Yes. Um, we are still, as a community, fighting for health insurance coverage of our surgeries, which means that people who are elders now um, are highly unlikely to have had gender-affirming surgeries, which um, bluntly means when they're um, unclothed, they have body parts that people don't expect. So what that means in the case of nursing homes and some home health care is that the trans person has no opportunity to be closeted. They have to be out as trans, whether they say it or their body says it. So the level of vulnerability that a trans elder has going into long-term care is much higher even than a lesbian or gay or bi um, resident because uh, for the LGBs, you might be able to you know, manage to go through without anybody really challenging you, but trans, it's out there. Um, so that's that really, I think, is the crux of the, the fear of nursing homes and um, home care is what if I need something like help with toileting? Or bathing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the, the loss of personal space and integrity. And well, I think, I mean, uh, one of the things that I try to do is, is keep remembering what is trans specific and what is generic. And nobody likes going into a nursing home. No one likes losing the, their independence. No one likes the regimentation. I mean, you know, there are, yeah, it's all of that plus. Plus the. Um, the fear. Non-consent. But there's this like, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. it it's it's not necessarily lack of consent because the, hopefully the person is opting into that community, but there's feels like there's a violation. There does. It does feel like a violation. And you got to remember the turnover is high. 
uh, on these in in these facilities. So it's like having to be outed to someone a couple of times a week. I mean, that is really stressful. This begs the question, how can we preserve the integrity and dignity of the person? Like, what can we as a system or long-term care communities do to, to ease that violation or, you know, improve this for transgender older adults? Well, what what Forge has done with some of our audiences, because one, for instance, we work with sexual assault nurse examiners, and we've had some sexual assault nurse examiners say the trans person needs to come out before I before I have the, have them naked, <laughs> and we're like, no, they don't. <laughs> Um, you know, they may, they have other worries. They've just been sexually assaulted. They have other worries. A person in a nursing home has other worries than whether she's come out to you. Um, so what we've done with the sexual assault nurse examiners is when we train them, we ask them what they have seen on bodies that they weren't expecting to see. To remind them that this is part of their job. And just because there's a body part they weren't expecting, they don't have to melt down. <laughs> and I, we could do the same thing with nurses' aides. I mean, it could be that simple. Yeah. But you know, we uh, socially we're taught that that's just. I mean, we've 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 built whole films around <laughs> discovering that somebody has a body part you weren't expecting. You know? It's like, no, we got to norm it. <laughs> you know, when people get naked, it turns out there are things the clothes covered that you didn't see before or you didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to normalize for the staff that, uh-huh. and then so that when they're providing care, like toileting or bathing, that it's, part of a human body right? and we accept it as part of the human body that we're caring for. And then what about for the, just the emotional experience of the, of the transgender older adult? I mean, because they're experiencing who will find out and, you know, one part of it is that the staff has to um, respond to the person as a person and not as a unusual person thing per, you know, and not objectify them and respond as that they're uh, odd or different or meltdown, like you described it. But how can we, is there anything else well, get into that? If you were, if you were allying to a trans older adult that was entering a nursing home, I would try to be there as much in the first few days as possible just to reassure the elder that um, you would help advocate and support if anything did happen. Obviously telling the um, uh, telling the staff ahead of time, um, you know, working with the staff ahead of time on trans issues would help. Um, if there's anybody out there that has uh, a bunch of money sitting around. I want to do a trans nursing home guide. <laughs> that would be so, you want to create a trans nursing home guide? Oh, that would be so good. Yeah. Based on what I've done in the past is ask people why they, what they worried about, like having men in a support group. And then I've gone to the people that have men in the support group or have had trans people in nursing homes and say, what was your experience? And then I put the two together and that's what I want. So mm-hmm. that people, um, so that people who are afraid of what's going to happen, find out that other people have and can um, deal with issues, mm-hmm. prevent and deal. Mm-hmm. So that was my, that was my plug. <laughs> yeah, it's a good plug. Also, because the agencies you work with are nonprofit, right? You look for grant funding to support the education that you provide. Well, earlier you talked about the third point, which was issues related to transition, that some uh, transgender older adults may have transitioned earlier in their life, and it may no longer be a relevant clinical 
or service-related conversation, um, though some are uh, maybe newer to the transition process or, or mm-hmm. embarking on it. Mm-hmm. And so what are some of the topics and sort of features to be considerate of or mindful of? Okay. Um, one that might be the first is figuring out their identity. Are they really, um, you know, what is their identity? Um, one thing that I find really interesting is that some of our early 70s transitioners um, no longer call themselves male or female, but call themselves non something under the non-binary. Uh, and it makes me think that they they made their transition decisions back when there were only two boxes. So if you weren't comfortable in one, you must belong to the other one. Then they got in the other one and decided that was too suffocating. So now they've gotten out of both boxes. So I think um, one of the things that I have a tendency to do is just a little bit of seeding of have you considered non-binary? Because that might be that might fit some people better. And it's just particularly with our older transitioners, they never thought of anything outside male and female. So the next stage is if you if you're gonna, if you've choo- chosen something other than what you've been living, then one of the major issues is do you do anything medically about that? Do you do hormones? Do you do surgeries? Um, then um you may have to obtain therapy and that could be because you want therapy or it could be because we still have physicians and surgeons that won't um, prescribe or do surgery on trans people unless a therapist has testified to their sanity, which is a problem we could talk about for a long time. Um, You've got changing their identification navigating job issues if they're still employed and then the big one of trying to keep their families intact if if they've got a family so those are all things that an ally might be helping with and what i would say for allies in those cases is the most important thing is to listen cheerlead and empower you do not want to do things for the trans elder. This is their process and they need to, they need to feel powerful enough to, to make it happen. You can, you can get resources, you can hold hands, you can accompany, but it shouldn't be yours to do if you're the ally. Things that came up to me as we were talking about long-term care communities and nursing homes was training for ombudsmen. Do you all do any training for ombudsmen who serve as patient advocates or resident advocates? I have not. I have been an ombudsman. What I do say about ombudsmen is um, ombudsmen and sexual assault nurse examiners are the two professions that I'm willing to say to a trans person, try them, because they're both trained to do the right stuff. The ombudsman is trained to follow what the resident wants. Now they might be, they might not do that. They might have, they might, there's some stuff that's, that, you know, there are risks there. And the sexual assault nurse is also really well trained for uh, doing trauma informed care and person centered care, the kinds of values that we want or people that work with trans people are in those two professions. So I would, I would, you know, even an untrained ombudsman, I would recommend trying. But yeah, I'd love to do training. Give them more training. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. You know, as you were saying that, um, my first before I became a psychologist, I I volunteered in my 20s with San Francisco Women Against Rape. Yes. And was a trained sexual assault volunteer. I would meet people in the ER who had um, been sexually assaulted and were receiving their rape kit, like a, a sex, uh, an exam following oh, yeah. sexual assault. And, 
yes, the training for that was extensive. And even this was, gosh, I'm 45. So this was more than 20 years ago. And um, they had extensive training on anti-oppression and uh, transgender identity and trans transgender health and sexual health after assault mm -hmm. for every identity. It was one of the best trainings, anti-oppression trainings I've had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, hopefully an ombudsman might hear this and then <laughs> reach out to you for training because it would be an essential training, I think, yeah. for ombudsmen. Well, Laurie, you have uh, gifted us with um, wisdom, nuance, <laughs> challenge, <a remind> challenge <laughs> a reminder that um, people do not fit in boxes and we shouldn't try to make them fit. And, um, and that there are not simple answers to these really complex uh, lived experiences and societally sort of oppressive experiences. And, you know, it's just, um, I, I found myself really wanting something simple. And though um, in the midst of our conversation, realizing this, this cannot be simple. And just that you hold space for the, um, just to acknowledge who people are and that we're not simple yeah. and we can't be labeled and it can't, it, we won't have a label that will match everybody perfectly and right. to follow the lead. Right. And so thank you. It was an important, uh, experiential moment for me. <laughs> oh, good. I challenged you. <laughs> That's so let's talk a little bit about where people can learn more about your okay. work and about um, this guide, uh, uh, how to be an ally to transgender older adults. Okay, so Forge, is, our main website is forge-forward.org. And it's set up primarily for um, sexual assault and domestic violence service professionals. So you probably ought to search for aging. Um, to pull up our stuff. And that would include how to be an ally to trans older adults. I'll link to that in your bio. The one, the one piece that um, you and I had discussed before we started uh, of whether I, I thought particular pieces were going to be ground world shaking. The piece that I thought was going to be world shaking is I, I have a new trans client. Now what? That one is specifically written thinking about um, certified nurse aides in mind. It's a little more simple. It's very practical of uh, asking the questions that they might like to ask, but would not would be inappropriate. Like, you know, what will I see when I get, when the client's unclothed um, or naked? So that one, I definitely recommend that people uh, take a look at and um, use whenever possible. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. And I think that goes back to the point about to normalize. That right. You're working with bodies, period. Right. Bodies come in all shapes and sizes. And right. Yeah. And it also, it also talks about mutual respect. And I mean, it's some of the values that, that are in that piece um, because the the way that our world treats difference is often um, I, I wanted I wanted the nurse aides to to hear me say you deserve respect and so does your client. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. So we'll link to I have a new trans client now. What? And the we'll link to forge forward.org and and to the elements on the website that are related to aging and then how to be an ally to transgender okay. older adults. Well, thank great. you so much. I look forward to more and more trainings with you <laughs> for our listeners. All right. So thank you. Well, thanks. Bye. That's all for today. Just a reminder, if you're a licensed mental health provider looking for continuing education, focused on mental health and aging, simply go to mentalhealthandaging.com to learn more about how to earn your CEUs. Calling all mental health providers. 
Have you been feeling ineffective, stuck, or unsure of how to best help your client with memory loss? Well, it's not your fault. Most therapists haven't had any training in addressing memory loss or cognitive changes in therapy. But I got something for you. In my free 10-minute video where I walk you through five steps for helping your clients presenting with memory loss, you'll learn the difference between memory loss and mental health concerns for older adults and how to help. Get this free training and a bonus workbook that you can start using in your clinic today. Simply go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity to learn more. That's www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y.